There are 29 kings and queens on planet Earth today who rule over sovereign realms. There, of course, are hundreds of other lesser kings and queens, tribal kings and queens in various countries around the world, serving as monarchs, as sort of sub-sovereign monarchs. But in the world today, there are 29, same numbers was baptized today, actually, 29 kings or queens that have a realm that they rule over. Now, in the old days, if you were a king or a queen, you had authority, didn't you? So you had sort of absolute authority over your realm, even to the point that you could determine who lived and died. That's not the case today. Most kings and queens are mere figureheads. So even over the dominion of Canada, we have Queen Elizabeth II. And her job, of course, is to guard the Constitution. But apart from that, she's more or less a figurehead over our country and doesn't really wield a lot of authority over members of the commonwealth. Well, in the word of God, Jesus Christ also declares himself to be a king. In fact, Jesus is called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. This wasn't new language to the Bible. It was borrowed from Mesopotamia. There was a point in history when the Mesopotamian kings were kind of the the superpower kings over the world, Sargon, Sargon II, and so forth. And in order to declare their power and prestige, they would declare themselves to be the king of kings and the lord of lords. And when our savior came, he reminded us, no, he is actually the king of kings and the lord of lords. And he claims sovereign lordship over each one of us as the one that spoke the world into existence by the power of his word. Most people in the world refuse to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians do bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge him as our king. But even within the church, we can fall into the error of saying he's our king, but acting almost as if he's just a figurehead. And living our lives with a high degree of autonomy, making our own decisions without consulting God, playing by our own rule book, a number of the people that were baptized today included something like that in their testimony. They were saved here, but then they more or less played by their own rules until God broke them. You see, when it comes to our submission to the king, It's not enough to just acknowledge him as the king of king and the Lord of lords. It's also necessary for us to act as though he is our king. In the word of God, uh, we see Jesus Christ in that Palm Sunday so long ago, claiming and declaring his unique kingship over me and over you. This event took place just a week or so before Resurrection Sunday five days or so before Good Friday, where Jesus approached Jerusalem, also known as Zion, the capital city of Jerusalem. And we know that the Israelites at the time were God's chosen people, his special envoys and representatives in the world. So Jesus is essentially approaching what was the the spiritual capital of the world, and therefore declaring his kingship over all of us. This is recorded in several gospels, but I've selected for our study today, Matthew 21. 
And we want to wrestle with the question of why the king came. And in claiming kingship, Jesus also tells us why the king came. So if you join me in Matthew chapter 21, we're going to see here some truths. Many of these, I'm suspicious, will function as reminders rather than new information for you. But good reminders on this Palm Sunday of why our king came and what the implications are for your life as he declares himself to be your king. So there's 11 verses that I'd like to study with you, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. And we'll just start with the first three. And here's the first reason. Jesus came as our king to remind the world that he owns everything. And that everything includes you and me. He came to remind us that he owns everything. The gospel writer records this, speaking of Jesus and his disciples. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is, is within, if you have a good arm, you could throw a baseball from Mount Zion over to the Mount of Olives. There's a valley in between, but it's within visual distance of Jerusalem. So Jesus is approaching the spiritual capital with his disciples, and they stop momentarily in a small suburban village. Jesus sends two of his disciples forward, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. If you've read this many times, that might seem kind of familiar to your ear. You might have lost sight of how strange this actually was. I mean, imagine if it was your colt and two strangers show up and they're like, hey, our Lord needs your colt and we'll take the, the mare as well. Okay. You'd probably, you know, Windsor police, we got a guy here, he's kind of a nut. He's trying to take my livestock. What should I do? This is a very strange event, but this is part of Jesus' declaration of ownership over everyone's property. There's several things in this passage that stand out. First of all, we, we ask the question, why did Jesus choose to ride a colt toward Jerusalem? How in the world is that part of his claim to, claim to kingship? Because if we went out of church this morning and we saw some guy riding a donkey down the road, we think, okay, this guy's a little strange. You wouldn't think, oh, he's declaring himself to be the king of Canada. It wouldn't cross your mind. But there was something culturally going on here. In ancient times, when kings would go out to fight battles against an enemy or to expand their realm and claim new territory, they would then come back victorious and they would participate in what was called a triumphal or triumphant entry back into their capital city. They'd find a big old war horse and decorate it, and they'd have their soldiers behind them and their robes and their crown, and they would march into the city gates, and the people would come out cheering and so thankful that their king had won territory for them or brought back great wealth or defended them from an enemy. And this was a declaration of kingship. Kind of the second most important aspect of a king's life, apart from his coronation, was a triumphant procession. 
Jesus' contemporaries would have understood by his act of riding this colt into Jerusalem that he was making a claim to kingship. At the same time, there was something different about Jesus' declaration than what they had been used to in their history. Jesus wasn't riding a big old war horse. He was riding a colt, a much smaller animal. There's echoes here of his humility, which are going to become clearer as we read through this text. Jesus is declaring himself to be the king, but he's tipping us off that his kingship is not going to be a tyrannical kingship. There's a lot of tyrant kings that have ruled throughout history that have destroyed people. Jesus would come as a benevolent king, a humble king, a king who would come for the benefit of his subjects and not to the detriment of his subjects. A third notable in this text is that Jesus has foresight and predicts that there would be a colt there, that there would be a mare there, that they'd find them immediately and that they would be given these animals essentially with no questions asked. So here we have insight into the divine knowledge of the eternal son. Many years ago when I was at youth camp, probably in grade 11 or 12, they had this horseback riding elective and I said, oh, this is kind of cool. I'd like to ride a horse. I'd like to watch cowboy movies. So this, this looks easy. Well, if you get on a horse and you've never ridden it before, it's not exactly a pleasant experience. I didn't enjoy it at all. You're being bounced around. Your back's kind of out of whack afterwards. You got sore inner legs. It, it wasn't a great experience, but you know what? I was riding an animal that was tame, that had already been broken. Jesus picks an animal that's not tame. It's never been ridden. It's not broken yet. That's not exactly a recipe for a great choreographed triumphal entry. I mean, imagine if as he's riding in, claiming, claiming kingship, all of a sudden it bucks him off and he looks like a total fool. So why does Jesus risk riding an untried colt instead of a tamed animal? Lordship. Jesus even has control over the colt. It's never been ridden, never been broken. That's not a problem for Jesus. He also presents himself as if he's the owner of the colt. Go and ask for it. He takes the colt and he rides it as if it's his own. Again, if you just came home this afternoon and someone's in your living room, you're finishing up your last bag of chips, and you were to say, excuse me, what are you doing here? I don't even know you. Oh, I own the place. No, you don't. I own it. But Jesus just takes something which, from a human perspective, isn't his, but from a divine perspective, is his, thereby declaring his kingship, and utilizes it as part of his claim. He lays claim to another's property because in actual fact, the property belongs to him. A few things for us to consider. Christ is also our rightful king. And the sooner we acknowledge Christ's kingship, the sooner we begin to live our lives in light of our proper identity. We didn't create the world. I'm a creature, not a creator. I'm a servant and a subject, not a king. And when I try to act like I'm a king and rule my own life and don't put my trust in God and make my own decisions without consulting God, 
inevitably it always winds up in some sort of a disaster, but Christ is our rightful king. And in this act and on this Palm Sunday, we remind ourselves of that. Christ is our king and we serve no king but Christ. Secondly, he's our only true sovereign. He is Lord over the world. He's the king in his position, but functionally, he's also our Lord. He's our master. He's in control of everything. He knows the beginning and the end. He claims ownership over each of us. The sooner you get to a point in your life when you realize, hey, I'm just a steward, not an owner, is the sooner you are positioned to live an abundant life in light of your true identity. We should ask one another right now, are we worshiping Christ and allowing him to truly control us? Or have we made the mistake of continuing to try to control our own lives? If Jesus came today and asked for your cult, not your cult 45, but using the word cult to speak of your possessions, your life, your family, your house, if Jesus came today and said, I would like that back, would you resist him? Or would you freely offer it to him knowing that he has just entrusted it to you temporarily, that you're not an owner. You're a steward of the resources God has given to you. The fact of the matter is that Jesus does ask for our lives. He offers us to pour out our lives as living sacrifices. He demands that we pour out our lives as living sacrifices before him. But the wonderful thing about God, and this is where we can find a great deal of comfort and trust, is that when he asks us to surrender to him, it's never to destroy us. It's always to bless us. Other kings, eh, they could go one way or the other. They could, want, they could come to you and ask for things just to build up their own kingdom, their own reputations to make their lives more comfortable. But this benevolent king is one that wants to bless us and encourage us not to destroy us. He does not come to condemn us. We're already condemned if we're ruling our own lives, but he comes to give us life, eternal life and abundant life. And in submission, you are freed to then live in light of your true identity. We need to be reminded of this. On occasion, I've had to help animals that were, have been in physical distress. My daughter brings me uh, the dog and says, there's something wrong with the dog. And I had to, won't go into the details, lance some things. We had a goat once that had a tumor on its chest. I had to cut it open and lance it. We had a heifer that was in distress. I had to get in there and pull this calf out. Now, whenever you're with an animal that's in distress, I can tell you, they don't think you're on their team. They want to claw, they want to kick, they want to run because you might be causing them pain, but you know what you're actually doing is saving their lives. Or, or helping them find healing from a disease. But because their minds can't comprehend the big picture, they want to run from you, or they want to fight back, or they want to resist you, or they want to hide. And in many respects, we're a lot like that too when it comes to God. God wants to rule us. 
And we think, well, that doesn't sound very good. I want to rule myself, thank you very much. I want to control my own destiny. Now, I'll tell you, I've tried that more than once. And I've set standards for myself. If I draw a line here, an imaginary line in the air, let's say that this line represents the standards that I set for myself. This is what I want to accomplish. This is how I want to speak. This is how I want to act. These are, these are my standards. These are my moral standards, my, my life goals. Now, let me just be honest and vulnerable with you, but you can nod too, because I think many of us are probably in the same situation. We try then to attain those standards, right? And once in a while, we exceed our own standards. We're like, oh, I surprised myself. I did pretty well there. Sometimes we just barely get to them, but more often than not, we fall short of our own standards. We set goals and we can't attain them. We strive for a straight A at school and we end up with a B or C. We, we try to be moral and we don't, we don't quite get there. and we, we disappoint our own standards. We can't even measure up to our own standards. Well, God's standards are perfection, way above our self-imposed standards. And none of us can ever meet God's standards. We always fall short. We're, we're trying to be gods. We're trying to be lords. We're trying to control our own lives. But the reality is we can't even meet our own standards, much less God's standards. And this is part of the, the human condition. But when Christ claims lordship over us and we surrender ourselves to him, his perfection becomes our perfection. His sacrifice becomes the pathway to eternal life for us. And we are blessed. We are blessed. We benefit from surrendering ourselves to the benevolent Christ. Secondly, in this text, Christ came, and this is a continuation of a thought that I'm already trying to develop for you, to remind the world that he was humble and benevolent. Even modern rulers love to have total control. We see that in light of the circumstances that are going on in our world today. Once people have power, they're not super interested in relinquishing it. They don't trust the citizens to make good decisions. They don't trust pastors to adequately care for their churches. Our governors have literally become dictators to us because they think they know what's best. Now, if you were to crawl inside of their heart and assess their motives, I'm sure you would find there that there's a great deal of benevolence and love and concern for their fellow man. But you would also find selfish intent, a desire to get reelected, a desire not to be held liable for accusations. No human being has pure benevolence towards others but Christ the King does. He has pure benevolence toward us. Christ rules us, but he rules us with humility, showing his love for others. The text goes on to say in verse four, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So we have the prophets of the Older Testament, the Old Covenant, the Hebrew Scriptures, prophesying forward what Christ would do. And we see time and time again, Christ fulfilling those prophecies. This is one of them where the Old Testament prophet said, say to the daughter of Zion, that's another word for Jerusalem, so to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. 
a beast of burden, not a regal horse, but a beast of burden. So even in the mind of the prophets centuries earlier, they, they, they understood this idea of the triumphant procession. And yeah, it was cause for celebration, but it wasn't really the greatest manifestation of humility. It was a manifestation of power and the, the control and the might of a king. The prophets prophesied that a new Messiah would come, a true Messiah would come, who would be a humble ruler. And lo and behold, Christ fulfills that prophecy perfectly. As such, he alone deserves our absolute attention and applause. His coming blesses people. He is the king, and his ultimate mission is to give glory to God. But he also comes to benefit and bless us. It's fascinating that the world, our flesh, and demonic powers around us have done such a great job in convincing people that the worst thing you could ever do is to surrender yourself to God. That's when the wheels are going to fall off the cart. You're going to live your life joyless. You're going to live your life believing in fairy tales. You have to check your brain at the door. But the opposite is true. These are lies. In Christ, there is fullness of life, forgiveness of sin, purpose, meaning, perspective, insight. The disciples of Jesus' time, look what they did. They went and they did as Jesus had directed them. They weren't like, oh, I don't know. This is going to look kind of weird. It's going to be kind of awkward. Jesus, do you think maybe someone else could go? We might get run out of town. The bylaw officer might be called. We might be written up. We might be arrested for theft. Maybe there's going to be a bit of a riot. They just obey him. And again, this this tips us off to how true disciples are to respond to the claims of Christ in obedience. They brought the donkey and the colt. They put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Here we have the disciples obeying Christ, even though it could have been embarrassing and gotten them into some conflict. There's no resistance recorded here in the text either, is there? The divine word, Jesus, that spoke the world into existence and sustains everything by the power of his word makes, gives an order to his disciples. They go and obey it. There's no resistance. And again, we have here, we have here claim to authority, claim to ownership, and a reminder that he is the one that sustains the whole world. Now I notice that you all came to church with your clothes on today. That's good. And chances are you got up this morning and you went to your drawer and you pulled out the drawer and you looked inside and you're like, okay, I'm going to use that pair of socks and you set them aside. And then you went into your, your closet and you were picking out a shirt and you're looking down the line. For some of you, it's like. (laughs) And eventually you found something suitable to wear and you dressed yourself. And then you went to your foyer, your garage and your closet. You're like, "Hmm, what shoes should I wear? (laughs) 
It's the weather like? Okay, and then you picked some footwear and you put it on. You came to church. We all have options, right? People have all kinds of options. Clothing is very inexpensive in our culture. In fact, if you're younger than me, let me just tell you this quick story. The price we pay for clothes today is less than what I paid for them when I was a kid. Clothes were much more expensive, let's say in the 1980s, especially if you wanted to be fashionable. I remember I had a buddy, he was kind of wealthy. He always had good clothes, so I wanted a few items too. And there was this store at the time, I don't even know if it exists today, called uh, Benetton. Do you remember that? And I went there and I wanted to buy this rugby shirt. And it was, it was like an $80 rugby shirt. And at the time, I was working full-time in the summers and my gross salary was $20 a day. So minus deductions, if I was to buy the shirt, it's like a week's wages, but I really wanted one. So I went and I saved up my money and I, I bought this shirt. I think I wore it once, twice, maybe three times. My mom accidentally spilled bleach on the front of it. And there, there was this navy blue line across the front, this big white bleach spot. And I'm like, I spent like a, a, a week's work trying to buy this shirt. So I took a blue marker and I like filled it all in. <laughs> It was kind of obvious, but it was very expensive to buy clothing. We have all kinds of clothes today, and we just we throw them out before they wear out, right? They go out of style before they get worn out for most of us. It's like, ah, I've had that in the closet for a few years, not in style anymore. It's perfectly fine, but ah, people will notice if I'm wearing it too much, so we, we toss it out. So when we read this narrative, we might be reading it through you know, 2021 eyes and think, yeah, they're just putting their clothes down, their cloaks down. But people in the first century, for the most part, had one option. They'd get up, there's my cloak, there's my robe, there's my undergarments, I put that on. There's no plan B. What you wear to the synagogue is what you wear to work, is what you wear to the market. People didn't dress up for church, for synagogue. There was no dress clothes for most people. You had one option. So you need to understand that when people are taking their cloaks off and they're, they're laying them down for Christ or putting them over as a makeshift saddle for his colt, this was an incredible act of homage, of self-sacrifice for Christ. We see the humility of Christ. He's, he's here for the world, but he also wants you to be here for him. He, he, he comes for us and to us, and he has our best interest in mind. But the deal is, you have to surrender to him. You have to pay homage to him as the true and rightful king of the world. The proper response to the humility of Christ is humility from us. This is the beauty of our relationship with Christ. And again, I pay pretty careful attention to testimonies. And I, I, I heard echoes of that in some of the, the baptismal testimonies today. People talking about being blessed by God, God helping them to overcome anxiety and depression and the challenges of life and find forgiveness from past mistakes. The humble Christ offers us those blessings, but the humble Christ also expects humility in return. And this is the benevolent, loving nature of our relationship with God. 
Third, he comes to remind the world that he is worthy of our worship. And the crowds went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Hosanna, what does that mean? It's an expression of praise and adoration. It's like a spiritual, yeah, right on. Praise God, he's here. They're excited. They're worshiping. They're public about their appreciation for Christ. He's called the son of David. This doesn't mean that literally his dad's name was David because we're like, oh, I know. I think Joseph was reckoned as Jesus' earthly father. That's true. But both Jesus and Mary are descendants of a famous king that had lived centuries earlier called King David. And he was like the the archetype, the stereotype of the future messianic ruler that would come to save the people from their sins. He was very much adored and esteemed by the people of Israel. So Jesus here is called the son of David because both in his humanity through Mary and also through his adopted father, Joseph, he was a descendant of King David. So as God, he's king. And as a descendant of the Davidic line, he can also claim the right to kingship. He's also, we're also told in verse nine that he comes in the name of the Lord. This is another word for kingship or rulership. I also love the fact that when we see the proximity of the crowds to Christ, they're essentially all around them. It says there's people behind them. There's people before him. Presumably there wasn't a whole lot beside him because he's moving in a linear line. But on either side of him, there are people praising and singing praises to God. And this, I would suggest, is a little bit of a foretaste of what it's going to be like in heaven. Jesus is going to be surrounded by people from all tribes, tongues, languages, and people groups who will be worshiping him. Hosanna, the son of David, our king, our Lord has come. This is what we're looking forward to. And it will happen. And we see this even in our own church. Look around. Diversity. We have people from different walks of life, different backgrounds, different stories. What binds us together is not that we all have the same hobbies or all speak the same mother tongue or are the same shade of brown, but rather that we together have been loved and adopted and our hearts have been renovated and we've been forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a beautiful thing that we should never, ever, ever lose sight of. A little taste here of the heavenly future touching earth in this moment when Christ is traveling toward Jerusalem. Now, sadly, his work was not yet done because about a week later, the same city was complicit in his capital death at the hands of the Romans, at the bequest of the Jews. In other words, the whole world was complicit in the death of Christ. Have you worshiped this king lately? Have you worshiped him? Have you surrendered yourself to him? The Lord Jesus Christ is a beautiful king. All of us from the, from the time we're conceived have a, 
a natural bent to want to rule our own little kingdoms. We see this even among little kids fighting for supremacy in the lineup of siblings, wanting to be recognized in class. Oh, me, pick me, pick me. On the sports team, wanting to excel, wanting to be on the honor roll, wanting to be right, wanting to be affirmed, wanting to be in charge. We, we all have this little king concept within us, this little queen concept within us. And it always messes us up. But when we surrender to the benevolent king and acknowledge our sinfulness and realize that he actually died for our sins, he went to a cross a week later and died for our sins and then conquered death. Didn't die for his own sins. He didn't have any to die for. He died for our own sins. And so because he was condemned for things he didn't commit, he was able to take the penalty that he paid and apply it freely to the spiritual accounts of all who would believe in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins. And he can forgive you of your sins as he has forgiven me. And then you just need to let him rule you and guide you. And he will always be a blessing to you and a benevolent ruler that will guide you into righteousness and abundant life and truth. So consider these words, even this week as we prepare for Good Friday to mourn the death of Christ, there's a certain optimism surrounding all of that because we know what Christ was ultimately going to accomplish for us. So trust in him and recommit yourself to him as a loyal subject and you will be blessed. 